so it is my pleasure to be the first teacher to welcome you to this session of Bible study. But I want you to think a little bit outside of the box. I don't want you to think of this experience as a Bible study. I want you to think of this experience as a pilgrimage. And here's why. A great theologian and pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, said in one of his books that Christians should identify themselves in two ways. The first way would be as a disciple of Christ. But he also said that Christians should identify themselves as pilgrims on a pilgrimage. And here's why. As Christ followers, we shouldn't be standing still, right? We should all be going somewhere. We should be going towards God. And the way that we get there is through Jesus. He's the guy that gave us the directions in the first place. We know that the, the Gospel of John records Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. Living the Christian life, guys, it's not just about believing Jesus is who he says he is. It's about following the path that he has already blazed for us. So during this session of study, we are going to dig deeply into the life and the ministry of Jesus. And my prayer is that as we learn and experience all of these things together, it will show us the path, the path we are supposed to be pilgrimaging on towards God, following in the footsteps of our Savior. So here's my challenge for you. Take Jesus by the hand right now and join the journey with me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this awesome day. God, thank you for these women who not only have a desire to know about you, but to know you. God, I just ask that what we learn through this study and what we experience as we encounter you and your son and the Holy Spirit through that, that that would move us, that that would move us along the path following your son who blazed such an incredible one for us. And it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Awesome. Okay, so I'm going to start with a uh, funny story. At least I think it's funny. And it's going to be at my husband's expense. So those aren't all good stories at your husband's expense or your teenagers. Those are great stories too. But he does know about it. So, you know, I've gotten approval. It's okay. I'm going to show you a picture, or Jamie is, of my sweet husband. Don't laugh because... I can't take a selfie, guys. Look at how my eyes are like veering totally away from the camera. At least he's cute in that picture, right? Okay, so this is Mike Thompson. He um, and I have been married for almost 21 years. Some of you might actually know him because as a pastor's spouse, uh, he has been voluntold to do everything. <laughs> and mainly he's been voluntold to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do, namely leading second grade boys in small group or at VBS. Because if any of you have ever raised a second grade boy or been around one, it's like herding cats. So nobody wants to lead second grade boys but Mike did it for me, okay? So he is such an awesome guy. And um, I actually have known Mike for a really long time. We grew up in Grove, Oklahoma together, a tiny little town, so we went to the same elementary school where my mom was a teacher. Our love bloomed in jazz band when we uh, sat together uh, because we both played saxophone. 
He wasn't cool enough to date at the time because he was only 14 and I was 16. Um, and then uh, we, when we started dating, we started dating as young adults. So I've known him for a long time. I got married when I was 25. But over the last 21 years, even I, though I've known this dude forever, right, I have learned so much about him over the time that we've been married. And I learned this first important thing right away, just like a couple months after we tied the knot. So we're living in Austin. We've just gotten married. I come home from work. I walk in the door to our apartment and Mike, imagine him, just imagine him. He's sitting on the couch with this giant Lord of the Rings book, reading it while listening to the soundtrack of Lord of the Rings in the background. And I discover for the first time that my husband is a nerd. Like I, I thought, that I had married the cool guy in high school because he played sports, he started on the football team, he actually got like best looking in the yearbook, which is not hard because Grove, Oklahoma has like 6,000 people total. Um, so, but I thought he was the cool guy and I realized, oh my goodness, my husband is a nerd. He's not a cool guy at all. And then it just gets worse from here. So J.K. Rowling starts publishing the Harry Potter books and obviously you can tell Mike is like a fantasy reader. He loves those kinds of books. So he starts reading the Harry Potter books. He falls in love with them. And so then he becomes like a huge Harry Potter fan. So much so that he's the creepy guy standing in line with all the children with their Gryffindor robes in line at the Barnes and Noble at midnight to get the books right whenever they are released. Okay, so I remember he was like, oh, Jill, you've got to read these books. I started reading it. I was like, this is boring. I'm not into this. Give me something different. Give me, I don't know, a love story. I, I don't need this. So I wasn't really interested in it until the movies came out. Then the movies come out and I'm like, I, got, I like Harry, Ron, and Hermione. I'm invested in these people. I, I, I want to know what happens to them. So fast forward to when uh, the seventh book, it's the last book, is published. And that's when we're going to find out the fate of these three friends that we have been you know, following along for all this time. And once again, my husband, who has, is a father by now, okay, he gets in line at the Walmart at midnight so he can get this book. He gets the book, he comes home, he reads all night long until he can read no more. So he falls asleep and I wake up at a normal time, like a normal human, and I see that he's left the book on his nightstand. And I decide, you know what? I need to know what happens to these people. So I tiptoe, like I do not want to wake him up because he would not approve of this. So I tiptoe over to his side of the bed, I grab his book, and I just quietly walk out of our room to the living room, and I proceed not to read the book from cover to cover, I read the last chapter in the epilogue, which takes like 20 minutes. You know, I'm a mom. I don't have time for this. And I figure out what happens. And so when he wakes up, I, of course, I'm like gloating. I'm like, I know what happens to Ron, Hermione, and Harry. And he's, he is livid because I haven't done the work of reading all the books and discovering all the moments that led to this big one, right? So I promised not to tell him anything and until he finished the book. So I tell you this story, not just to be silly, but to say that's what we're going to do today. We are going to open our study of the life and the ministry of Jesus 
at the close or the end of Jesus' earthly life. And my hope is, is when we do that, when we take a look at the crucifixion of Christ and this last pivotal act of love that Jesus performs, it will create in us a deeper and richer meaning and understanding of all of the moments that you're going to study that lead up to this one. So today we're going to camp out in um, Mark's gospel. So Mark, we know, is one of the four gospel narratives in the New Testament. And um, it is actually what scholars think is the first one penned between A.D. 64 and A.D. 70. And as we, as we journey on our pilgrimage through this, this study, through the next few weeks, I want you to keep in mind that each of the gospel writers were different people, right? And even though it's likely that they shared same, the same source material, they were writing to a specific audience for a specific purpose. So evidence suggests that uh, the, the author of the Gospel of Mark was John Mark. And John Mark was a disciple and an interpreter for Peter and hung out with him and worked alongside him while Peter was in Rome. So imagine this in your head. This is how I picture it. I picture Peter sitting down and John Mark at the feet of Peter. And Peter is just recounting all of these stories of the things that Jesus did and, and what Jesus said and all of his experiences with Jesus. And, and, and John Mark is just listening intently. Then he runs back to his sleeping quarters or maybe he finds a shady spot under a tree and he fastidiously records everything that Peter has told him about his time with Jesus. And that's ultimately what becomes the Gospel of Mark. I also imagine that Mark is, John Mark, as, as, as he is, is writing and penning his gospel, he's thinking about his, his friends um, in Rome, the fellow believers that are with him, who are experiencing persecution and the threat of death under the Roman emperor at the time, Nero, who maybe some of you know really, really disliked Christians. So we're going to camp out at the end of Mark, chapter 15, only one more chapter after that. There's 16 chapters in Mark. We're going to camp out at the end of chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 24, which is where Mark writes the crucifixion of Christ's narrative. Okay, so before we actually jump into verse 24, before we jump into the text, let me set the scene for you. In a day's time, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own with a kiss. Then he's been arrested in the garden by the chief priest's henchmen and condemned to death by the religious leaders of his own people. The next morning, he's taken to Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea at the time. And he's the guy that actually has the power to carry out capital punishments. And if you've read any of the Passion narratives, you know that Pilate was hesitant to do that. But he went ahead and approved the execution of Jesus because a crowd of Jesus' own people are, are crying out for his crucifixion. And from that point on, Jesus experiences extreme 
physical pain and punishment and humiliation at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And too weak to even carry his own cross, he's led to Golgotha, the place of the school, where he is to fulfill his ultimate purpose of willingly giving up his life so that the relationship between humanity and its creator could be restored. And that's where we're going to begin today, right at the foot of the cross. So go with me to Mark chapter 15, verse 24. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, truly, this man was the son of God. Okay, there is a ton to unpack here, but we don't have all day to do it. So what I wanna do is focus in on the Roman officer's confession in verse 39. I believe that it is no coincidence that the first human in Mark's gospel to declare Jesus as the son of God was a Gentile. Let me build a case for you. I want you to go with me one chapter ahead to chapter 16, verse 15, to hear what Jesus has to say after his resurrection as he instructs his disciples. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my Bible and go there with you too. And then he told them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. The word everyone is so key. In other translations, instead of everyone, the phrase whole creation or all creation is used. And I think this word and these phrases make it clear that Jesus' work on the cross was not just for the redemption of the Jewish people, but for everyone, for all creation, for the whole creation. 
This is actually a trajectory that begins in Mark chapter 7. Now, we're not going to go back there. I'm just going to paraphrase this story with you. Uh, Jesus has a conversation in Mark chapter 7 with a Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile. And this woman is a mother, and her child is possessed by an evil spirit. And she comes to Jesus and asks for help. And even though we know Jesus' ministry was mainly to the Jewish people, he speaks to this woman. He has a conversation with her. And in this conversation, he acknowledges this Gentile woman's faith, and he heals her daughter. Okay. I'm going to keep building my case. I want you to now, we're going to, we're going to travel to Mark chapter 10. So we're moving back from 16, but up from 7. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So go with me there. Okay. This is something that Jesus says as he's instructing his disciples, which is something he does a lot towards the end of Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, put a pin in this, in this scripture, just or hold your finger there. And now I want you to jump to Mark chapter 14, verse 45. So go there with me, but hold on, because we're going to compare these two verses. Mark chapter 14, verse 24. Okay, so the verses around uh, verse 24 is the time that Jesus is having, sharing the, the Passover meal right before he's arrested with his disciples. And he takes a goblet of wine and he uses it as an illustration. And here's what he says. He says, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Okay, so here's my question. What key word do you see in both of those verses? Many. Yay! Good job, guys. Many, absolutely. Both of those verses have the word many. And, I, and I, as I was taking a deep dive into uh, the book of Mark, um, a theologian, James Edwards, who I read his commentary, he says that in the original language, the word for many actually expresses something a little bit different. It expresses totality or all, which is a little different than what we think of as many. And I believe that this, this idea of totality or all points us toward what we now know that the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice was not just to bring salvation to a few or even just a good amount of people, but to offer this precious gift to all humanity for all time. And finally, the faith of the Roman centurion that we see expressed at the foot of the cross just extends this trajectory and we see where the gospel is going, right? Here's a Gentile soldier who actually participated in the execution of Jesus, who is the first human in Mark's gospel to declare Jesus as the Son of God. That's incredible. While Jesus' death did mark the end of his earthly life, it also initiated the beginning of the rest of our story. The death and the resurrection of Christ, it removed the barriers that sin had put in our way. 
so that we could experience like a spiritual rebirth and the presence or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that little bit of God that lives inside of us. And we also have the promise of remaining in the care of God for eternity. So I've studied this scene in Mark chapter 15 a lot. And the question that keeps rolling around in my head over and over again is this. What was it that enabled that Roman officer in that moment to recognize who Jesus really was? I want to read verse 39 again to you, but this time I'm going to read it to you in the NASB translation. And it's a more of a word-for-word -word direct translation than the paraphrase of the NLT. And I think we might be able to capture something in it. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. When he saw the way he breathed his last. Isn't that powerful? Does it take you back to the moment in your life when you first recognized who Jesus really was? The officer's profession did not come after he heard Jesus tell some incredible parable stories, right? And it didn't happen after he saw Jesus perform incredible signs and miracles. The Roman officer's profession of faith, of Jesus as God's son, comes as he watched Jesus willingly suffer and give up his life on the cross. That's what did it. I want to share with you a quote from a commentary, uh, and I think these words just beautifully encapsulate the power of this riveting scene. At Gethsemane, Jesus made the costly decision, which he now fulfills, to do the will of God rather than his own will. In this haunting picture of Jesus, fastened to a cross and assailed in mockery, we see proof of the amazing difference between God's way and everything which men consider their goal or conceive of as being God's way. There is no self-defense from Jesus, no effort to get even or even get in the final word, no attempt to preserve at least a modicum of dignity and pride. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to the malevolence and violence of the world. Jesus, who was God incarnate, who had the power to, to take himself off the cross, instead chooses the path of suffering and gives up his life for us. And this is where our faith as believers should be rooted. Not in signs and miracles, not in the things that we think God can do for us, but in a hearty trust in the person and work of Christ, especially his work on the cross. And maybe that's what Mark was thinking about when he penned his gospel, hoping that it would encourage his friends in Rome who were struggling and facing persecution and even death. Maybe he was hoping it would encourage them as their faith began to waver. And we don't have anything to compare that to, right? We have no idea what it was like to live as a first century Christian in Rome at the time. But we can also let the cross and the Roman officer's confession 
Encourage us today as we persevere in the faith, knowing that our Savior experienced the same pain and suffering that comes from being a human. And it was in that suffering that Jesus did his greatest work. I want you to just sit with that for a moment. It was in his suffering that Jesus did his greatest work. Maybe, is it possible that in our lives too, God does his greatest work in us as we pass through seasons of suffering? I know that that has been so true for me in my life. When I look back, I think about all the vacations that we've taken as we've been raising our kids. We have a 13, 15, and 19-year-old now. And we have been to Disney World a lot, more times than I want to admit, but we love it. There's like something different. When you go to Disney, it is the happiest place on earth, right? So we've gone on all these trips with our kids to Disney World, and we've had a great time. We love riding the rides. We love eating all the good food, staying at the cool restaurants, and we've made incredible memories. But those experiences have done nothing to grow me spiritually or draw me closer to God. It's been losing my dad at 22, marital struggles, dealing with clinical depression, health crises, and parenting through difficult seasons. It's those things that God has used to change me and to draw me closer to him. So here's my challenge for you as you go forward in this pilgrimage and you go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' life next week. I want you to remember the end. This pivotal moment at the cross and all the significance it holds. Let it lead you into deeper waters as you encounter Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your presence. God, thank you for embodying who you are to us through Jesus. God, let us see, see you and your character reflected as we go through this study. We love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to run to Edmund. <laughs> Thank you, guys.